All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Kim Thompson. I'm program manager of our seafood conservation program, Seafood for the Future, here at the Aquarium of the Pacific. Before we get started, I want to remind you all to please turn off your cell phones and mobile devices. Um, and please refrain from texting during the presentation. I would like to say thank you to our lecture sponsors, the Gazette Newspapers and Courtyard Marriott. Tonight, I'm very pleased to welcome Mike Mitchell, who's going to discuss turning a problem fish into an economic boon in Mexico. Mitchell worked for a startup financial services company in San Francisco before moving to Guatemala in 2012 to work on an urban agriculture and aquaculture project. He moved to Tabasco, Mexico in 2014 on a Fulbright research grant to study small-scale fish farming in rural communities. Mitchell holds a master's degree from UC Berkeley in development practice and an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania with a concentrations in marketing and environmental policy and management. It's my pleasure to welcome Mike Mitchell. Hi, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike. Uh, thank you for having me tonight. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, before I get started, I just wanted to mention uh, I was in Mr. Smith's class back in 2003. Um, so that was quite a pleasant surprise to see him here. Um, I would uh, say that I probably got my start with sustainable fisheries and aquaculture in his class back at Peninsula High School. So um, yeah, it's come full circle. Um, I'm here today to talk about my work with Akari Fish. It's a company that I manage out of Oakland, California, and Mexico. Um, we work with the invasive armored catfish, or suckermouth catfish. Uh, I brought some samples. Uh, in Mexico, they call it the devilfish. It's a widely hated fish. Um, so I'll take it out. I'll pass this around. So what it looks like. It looks a little prehistoric. Um, maybe some of you guys have seen it. You know, sorry. Um, it's a very common aquarium fish. It's a very a common aquarium fish. We often know it as a, a sucker fish or a cleaner fish. Um, these guys are pretty small. We fish them in Texas. Um, it, they can actually grow to be about that big in the wild. Um, as many fishermen will say and oftentimes lie, they've seen some this big. I've never seen any that big. They're usually about that big. Um, so I guess I'll give a little bit of context about this fish um, and the environmental damage or impact it's had in Mexico. Um, so like I said, it's an invasive fish in, in Mexico. It's invasive in numerous countries all over the world. It's invasive here in the US as well. Um, it is originally from Brazil, Colombia, the Amazon region. Um, first arrived in Mexico about 15, 20 years ago. It's a freshwater fish, and since then it's taken over the Mexican freshwater ecosystem. So today it accounts for about 70, 80% of wild fish capture. Um, and there's, it's a pretty cool fish, well, in my mind at least. So it, uh, it's a pretty resilient fish. It can breathe air like you and me. It can live out of water for up to 24 hours, uh, for, for up to 24 hours. Um, as you guys can see, it doesn't have uh, soft skin or scales like you might be used to. It has a bit of an armored plate uh, plates, so kind of, I don't know if you've seen with sharks, if you rub it one way, it's smooth, the other way, it's sharp. So be careful with this fish, uh, because it will slice your hands if you rub it the wrong way. 
Um, and it, it fills nets. So it reproduces like crazy. It, can, it lays about four to 6,000 eggs each time. Um, other fish in the region, like a tilapia, will lay two or 3,000 eggs at a time. Um, it's highly territorial, so it outcompetes a lot of native species for both uh, just the space as well as food. Um, and then probably the most destructive activity of this fish is it, it eats algae and, and uh, stuff on the, on the bottom of, of the riverbed and lagoons, but that's actually where native fish lay their eggs. So through incidental consumption, it eats a lot of the eggs of the native fish species. Um, just to continue a little bit more, um, these are actually the burrows. This is when the water level is dropped. These are the burrows that it creates uh, in the riverbanks and, and lagoons to lay its eggs, be up to about a meter, two meters deep. Um, so check this out. So female lays the eggs, male stays behind, protects the nest, and it has a lot, uh, a, a reproductive rate or success rate a lot higher than native fish species because the, the male fish is there protecting the nest. Um, so here's a little map of where this is found currently in Mexico. This is, map is a few years old, um, but this is where we're located in Tabasco, Mexico, southeastern Mexico. Um, so all throughout this region, Tabasco, uh, Campeche, Chiapas, it's just is all over the place. And because of the, the sigma or the lack of information around this fish, a lot of people think it's poisonous. I've had people tell me that the CIA sent it down to ruin the Mexican economy. I, I mean, it's a you know, ninja turtle, all this crazy stuff. Uh, people are afraid to eat it. Um, people hate this fish. They throw it away. So I've seen people uh, fishing for hours where they're pulling out tons and tons and tons of this fish, and they just throw it away. Um, back in the day, fishermen tell me that they could catch 30, 40 kilos, you know, maybe anywhere from 60, 70 pounds of commercial fish a day. Um, now they're catching four to five kilos, 10 pounds of, of commercial fish a day, and up to 300 kilos or 700 pounds of this fish. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, current or, or past uh, solutions or attempts to solve this problem. Um, let's see here. So a lot of people have tried to make fish meal out of it. As, uh, as an input for aquaculture, for fish farming. It's usually the most cost prohibitive input in fish farming. Um, and it's a great idea. We, we'd love to do it as well. The only problem is it has a very low yield and it requires a lot of expensive machinery. So a lot of these projects haven't worked out. Um, this project up here, they turn it into uh, things like chorizo sausages and ham and stuff like that. Again, they were, uh, they had a lot of upfront capital expenses, um, didn't really work out with the pricing, pricing and everything. Um, and I think a big thing that these other projects have tried to do is they try to race to the bottom. With, they treat it as a trash fish and they try to sell it for pennies on the dollar instead of converting it into something more useful or more valuable and in turn create a larger market for it. Um, and that's pretty much, oh, so, this is where I'm going. Um, I think instead of trying to transform it into something uh, like a fish meal with very low cost, for example, low price point, um, we just need to treat it as a fish. Um, I think maybe some of us have heard about other cases of 
uh, invasive fish or non-commercial fish being transformed. Here, this fish is um, traditionally consumed, widely consumed in Brazil and Colombia. Here are some dishes. Uh, it's sold in the market. It's, it's stewed or roasted whole. So in other parts of the world, what is viewed as a trash fish in Mexico or in Texas is actually just a normal fish that you can find in the market. Um, so I'd like to run through the logic a little bit with you guys. Um, raise your hand if you've heard of the Chilean sea bass. Yeah, pretty good fish, right? Pretty expensive, you find it in fancy restaurants, you know, fancy dishes like this. Does anyone know the real name of it? Yeah, Patagonian toothfish. It's not from Chile, and it's not a sea bass, but it's the Chilean sea bass. Um, so similar concept. It's not invasive fish, but it was essentially a trash fish back in the day in the 70s, 80s. Someone figured out that it has nice flaky white meat, changed the name, it turned into a marketing problem, and started selling it. This is another example. Um, I, I, I talk a lot at culinary schools, and people always get grossed out by how this fish looks. Um, this is the basa, or swai, pangasius. It's one of the most widely consumed fish today. Um, it's a type of catfish usually farmed in places like China and Vietnam. But again, you'll never see this whole fish in a market, like in Costco or wherever. You just see the filet. And people say, hey, it's a cheap, white, flaky fish. I'll buy it. And so that's really the concept of our work. Um, treat it as a fish, change the name, and process it into something tasty. And so I'll pass out some of uh, our samples if you want to try. What we've been doing, <laughs> so, it's, uh, yeah, you can just pass them out and open some up. Um, the fuego is quite spicy. Um, but what we've done is we started, we turned this fish into jerky. So this fish actually has a lot of hemoglobin and iron, which lends itself very well to being quote-unquote jerkified. It's uh, got a much rougher or tougher consistency than most fish. It's a good source of protein, omega-3, all that. Um, and we actually stumbled across this application as jerky, just playing around with ways to preserve the fish. Turned out pretty well. And we decided to build the whole company on, on making jerky out of this fish. Um, so we set up a small processing facility in rural Mexico. These are some of our employees. Set it up, registered with the FDA, and now we're bringing in fish to the US to make it into jerky. Um, a big benefit for us is that because of this hemoglobin, because of this iron content, essentially the unique properties of this trash fish, if you will, or underutilized species, um, it tastes and feels a lot more like beef jerky, but it has the health benefits of fish. So when you eat it, it probably doesn't feel or taste like a traditional fish jerky if you've tried salmon or tuna jerky, for example. Um, it's a lot more along the scale towards beef or pork, right? Or what do you, I don't know, what do you guys think? More like beef? Cool. Um, so also, I guess uh, a lot of you guys are taking Spanish, so they call it the devil fish in Mexico. So our brand name is El Diablito, and this is our brand. It's a play on what they call the fish. Um, this is just a, a quick overview of why jerky. 
Um, I guess mostly for investors. Um, yeah, jerky market's really popular. A lot of outdoor snacking. Um, it's good for people trying to eat more protein, um, low in fat. And that's the direction we're taking uh, with this fish. Um, okay, so I guess I'll talk about what's next. Um, we started this company, uh, I guess, mid last year, it turned, uh, around the summer of last year. Um, we were building it up. Uh, now it's time to fundraise. So if you guys have money to give us, so you can invest in our company. Always happy to take some money, or donations actually would be even better. Um, we're scaling production. I guess I'll dive into that a little bit more. Um, the idea for us is leaving the production in the rural communities that are affected by this fish. Um, so like I said, we, we created a small scale facility in rural Tabasco. And so our fishermen are today earning 25, 30% more than they were earning before. Um, a lot of these communities, these fishing communities, uh, lie along the same stretch of highway on its way to up north, the Mexico City. And the idea is to use pre-existing infrastructure uh, in these communities, like an old uh, butcher shop, if you will, um, retrofit that and turn it into a processing facility to hire people in those areas. The reason being is if we built one central location and brought the whole fish to those centers, uh, to the processing facility, we would be paying these fishermen very low wages and we would be grouping all that wealth in, in a, a, a central location. So what we're doing right now is, is we're looking into building up uh, more process facilities throughout states like Chiapas and Tabasco and Southern Mexico and, and basically just be able to get as much filet as possible and then bring it into places like Canada and the US. Um, we're working with a jerky manufacturer the same guys that make the jerky for Trader Joe's, for example, that, that, that's who made this, uh, this batch. Um, we're working with them uh, outside of Chicago to scale production um, and then increase distribution. So uh, maybe one day we'll sell at Peninsula High School, who knows? Um, but for now, we are looking at selling uh, in corporate pantries. So my co-founder and I both used to work in tech in the Bay Area. So we'll sell to the Googles and Facebooks of the world that. Uh, you know, they give free food to their employees, so why not um, sell online? You can follow us online um, and buy online. Oh, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, where was I? Um, yeah, and then, and then roll out to retail. So everything was good. Um, last year, we won a couple business competitions. We had different investors on board or interested in investing with us. We had people like uh, the head chef from Facebook calling us up, wanting to serve our product. Um, we thought we were going to launch in like June, July, and really just solve this problem and scale up on a large scale. Um, but we ran into a very unique problem, uh, I guess in April, I believe it was. Um, we got a call from a customs broker as we were willing, uh, getting ready to bring a truck of fish into the US um, that said, hey man, you can't bring catfish into the US anymore. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you can't. And I was like, but this is not a catfish. I mean, this, this is not a catfish. I don't want to drip, right? Um, but unfortunately, according to relatively new American regulations, it is a catfish. Um, so the last six months have been a holding pattern for us and a very unique uh, 
frustrating experience in American politics, lobbying, and, uh, and food regulations. I'll give you a quick background about this regulation. So this all started with a battle between that fish that I showed you, that ugly catfish, the basa, uh, and American catfish. So over the last 15 years or so, American catfish producers in places like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, have seen their market decline dramatically because of imports of cheap basa, this guy. Basa or swai, a couple other species, mainly from China and Thailand, Vietnam. So in 2001, they changed the definition of catfish so that these guys couldn't call it catfish anymore. Didn't work. In 2006, I think it was, they slapped a whole bunch of tariffs on the fish. Still didn't work. They were still cheaper than American catfish. So in 2014, they changed the regulation of catfish uh, from the FDA, where all seafood is regulated, shrimp, tuna, all that is regulated. They changed it from there to the USDA. So what does that mean? Well, now, today, the USDA regulates pork, beef, poultry, eggs, and catfish. And it means that there's a lot, a lot of new rules that you have to play by if you want to export catfish from your country to the US. Um, and a lot of those rules are very costly. Unfortunately for us, Mexico failed their first round of inspection. So as of March of 2018, all catfish imports from Mexico were banned, which puts us in a very interesting position. This we got in, well, just because we just sent it in and called it uh, devilfish, but it worked. Uh, so there's a couple things going on. Um, Vietnam filed a trade dispute in the WTO, citing unfair trade practices uh, against the US. China signed on as well, so now it's Vietnam and China against this. There's actually a lot of lobbying efforts uh, being done, not just from us, but from people on the East Coast, in the South, smaller catfish producers like us. Um, so this is where we're going. Um, and so there's, there's this huge battle going on right now uh, around catfish, which is crazy, but we're now part of it. So we're stuck between Vietnam and essentially Alabama in catfish wars with a species that has nothing to do. It doesn't look, feel, or taste anything like the catfish you'll see in the market or in Alabama catfish farm. So we're not gonna just sit there and, and give up. What we've been doing is one, we're looking at going north. So go to Canada, replicate everything we have here, but in the Canadian market. So with new manufacturers, new, new distributors and everything. Uh, lobbying, I'm happy to talk more about uh, grassroots activism and lobbying if you're interested later. Um, uh, I've been on the phone a lot with uh, our California representatives, uh, representatives from other states. Um, we have a lobbying firm based out of Washington on our payroll now, um, different trade groups. It's, uh, it's been very interesting seeing all the inner workings around fish and food and lobbying and, and getting what you want out of the American government, quite frankly. Um, number three is uh, dancing around the regulation. So um, we've been going back and forth with Vietnam. Uh, I, I go back in a couple weeks. Um, so since Vietnam has the permits, if we ship the whole fish to Vietnam, process it in Vietnam, it's no longer a Mexican product, it's a Vietnamese product, and then we can bring it in that way. So that's another thing that we're looking into. 
Um, and then domestic sourcing. So as I mentioned, uh, the armored catfish, the devilfish, is uh, pervasive all across Texas, Florida, uh, Hawaii. Um, it's even actually in the LA River. Um, so we've been talking to about half a dozen uh, environmental organizations around the country. A lot of them have tournaments. These were actually fished out of Texas, um, spearfished. So they have spearfishing tournaments where they go hunt them and they have uh, awards and everything. Um, so we're talking to these NGOs about sourcing from them and, uh, and figuring out a way around this to get this jerky to market. And, um, and we'll see. That's, that's where we're taking it for now. Um, and so that's, that's pretty much wrapping it up. Um, basically just the overview. We're taking this invasive devilfish in Mexico that is widely hated and, and vilified and we're turning it into a jerky. Um, why jerky? Well, it has a lot of interesting characteristics that lend itself very well to, to be made of jerky. I think as, as many of you have, who have tried, it tastes and feels a lot more similar to beef or beef jerky. Um, we're working with these rural communities across Tabasco and, and soon hopefully Chiapas uh, to build these rural processing facilities, work with these fishermen and put them back to work. Um, at the same time, we're helping at least um, mitigate the damage or reduce the populations of this invasive fish. Um, we're never going to eradicate it, but hopefully we'll at least be able to control the population and create an industry, more importantly, around this fish so that these fishermen have a livelihood for it. Um, and hoping to launch uh, by early next year. So with that, um, I'd like to open up to questions and go from there. Sorry, that was a bit, that was a bit quick. All right. All right, so you guys got to see the fish. You guys got to taste the fish. Was the fish good? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. See, it's better than jerky. It's also better for you. <laughs> better for the planet as well. Um, so does anybody have any questions? Yes. Hold on. I need to get a mic to you just because we're recording this, and I'll let Linda give you that one. Um, you said that Mexico failed the equivalence round. Like, what is in the equivalence? Like, what do they fail exactly? Like, what do they test there? Yeah, so in the first round, it's really just about the public policies that exist and the inspection system. So one of the components of this regulation is that um, there has to be an inspector on site during processing. So Mexico doesn't have that set up. Most countries don't have that set up for fish plants. Um, so that was really the first one, and then the public policies in general, so around like how they, they keep track of, uh, you know, the processing inspection times and stuff, they didn't just have that infrastructure. Um, so yeah, like I said, most countries actually failed that round. Canada failed as well. Um, and so they're, they're working on it, is what the, they said. Can you talk a little bit, uh, I think you had mentioned, so you, in the initial stages, were working with some chefs in Mexico. You were working with the culinary community to try to test and try out different ways that you could market and sell this fish. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you guys have seen this example, uh, this concept before with other fish. There's the lionfish in the U.S., the snakehead, uh, Asian silver carp. Um, different species that are viewed as, as trash fish. I don't really like that term, but underutilized species or species that aren't really worthwhile. Um, so we were working with, well, we, we have been working with chefs 
basically just to change the perception of it. Um, a lot of, we got started by going out into rural communities. Um, I was already working and living out there, and so I would just work with communities, show them how to fillet it, and try it, you know, and get over that hurdle, get, get over that stigma. Um, we started working with some chefs. There's one chef in Tabasco that actually makes this burger um, out of the fish. Um, and again, you would not believe that you're eating fish. It tastes like a, just a normal, everyday burger. Um, and so we still sell some filet in, in Mexico. Um, we sell to Google, for example, in Mexico City. Um, it's just that the, the perception or the stigma around this fish is so strong that it's very hard to, to convince people to eat it. Um, and so that's why we're really looking at other markets. But yeah, we continue to work with, with chefs and uh, especially, you know, maybe every couple months we go out into a real community, someone invites us over and we always say that they pay us in empanadas or in tacos and we go out, we spend a few hours, we fillet the fish, we hang out, we cook it, and then they send us on our way with some ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. So as you're teaching people how to fillet and teaching them the value of this fish, do you see any sort of social change or are people looking at it differently in Mexico, especially the ones that are making more livelihood off of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, at first it's always, it always like goes the same way, right? People are like, hey man, you can't eat that fish, you're crazy. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll eat it first. And then I eat it and then, you know, it's usually actually the women in the community, like the men stand on the side and they're like, no nah, man, you try it, you try it. No one wants to do it, but the women are always like, yeah, sure, it's good, it's food, yeah, try it. And then everyone tries it. Um, and, and yeah, so going back after those initial workshops is, is actually really cool, because we'll ask around, people are like, yeah, man, I had it the other day, or I'm eating it now, and stuff like that. And, and so I think change the perception and having people see it as food, because that's what they're catching nowadays, right? More so than other, like tilapia. So first off, they see it as food, and then now they see it as an actual economic benefit, where they can process it and sell it, and then seeing mini replica projects around the state or the region um, is, is pretty, yeah, it's pretty empowering, you know, to see that happening. Uh, just to piggyback on that, are you working with any environmental education groups or schools or anywhere to, like, social media to help start spreading the word? Because it seems like when you make it person to person from your anecdotes, it seems to be having a great impact. Yeah, the finances uh, speak a lot, but person to person too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we've done some work um, with local universities, for example. We do a lot of work with them. We'll, we'll usually piggyback on them. So with like repopulation projects of, of native species um, or whatever sort of environmental or, or aquaculture projects, they always have an education component. And so usually we'll go out and we'll do a workshop or something with that. Um, and then we're also working with the, the UN, the UNDP down there. So again, same thing, we'll get roped into some sort of workshop or talk at a you know, municipality or, or town. Before I, so um, can you, so you talked about the importance of communities and how you got the communities involved and how this is a really great economic opportunity. Can you elaborate a little bit on, um, you know, how the community has embraced this and some of the pride that they've taken in this fishery and this resource? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's really what keeps us going when we are so frustrated and bogged down by these regulations um, is we, 
going back to these communities and seeing the sense of ownership that they have over their resource and over the, the, uh, the processing of this fish. So, you know, when I started, everyone was just at wit's end. Everyone said, oh my God, like what can I do with this fish? I can't fish anymore. People were traveling an hour a day or two hours a day into other cities to wash windows or whatever, make ends meet. And now they get to stay home. Now they go to work and they're like on Facebook or in articles or whatever in front of this processing facility and they have strong ownership of it. So there's been a handful of different folks um, from companies or the government that haven't always frankly had the best intentions. They, they want to steal some of our uh, human capital. And, um, and so it's kind of cool. You know, these people will show up and they're looking for our employees and our employees will say, no, nah, that person's not here. Or no, we're not going to work with you. Or no, you can't come into our plant or whatever. Um, because it, it's really theirs. And, um, and that's the whole point of, of our work is to bring this industry and this economy to the community as opposed to some sort of extractive industry from us. Um, sorry, another question I had was, if the U.S. has many frustrating regulations, I think is the word that you said, um, can you elaborate more on the decision to continue trying to pursue selling in the U.S. instead of other, um, other continents or other countries? Yeah, um, so we are looking actively at going to Canada. Um, we, we're probably about two-thirds of the way there. Um, they just ask for a, a lot of paperwork and a lot of hurdles, uh, hoops you have to go through to import fish into Canada. But, but we're on our way there. We have um, you know, factories and then distributors and stuff that are interested in working with us. So we're, we're working there. It's just the U.S. market is so big, especially around jerky. Um, the sustainable seafood industry or movement is, is much larger here. Um, and so that's why we're, we're being stubborn and we're trying to come here. Um, and I think as a stopgap measure for us, it's uh, sourcing you know, from Hawaii or Texas, at least in the short term, um, getting our production. And then until we can continue to chip away at this regulation or um, you know, we're, we're fighting for a wild caught exemption, for example, um, which has been in the books, but it's lobbying and American politics. And it's, so it's really slow. But um, what's interesting through this whole adventure and this rabbit hole is We've been talking to folks in the Carolinas and Florida, New Jersey, all sorts of stuff that fish wild catfish. And so they're all affected by this regulation as well. And so now we have this coalition and letter writing campaign and, and it's, uh, you know, it's bringing us together, if you will, coast to coast, anti-catfish provision. So I'm uh, not sure how to frame this exactly, but it sounds like you, the company that you're starting up and sort of the mission and uh, is you know to support those those local communities. They're earning more money. Uh, you mentioned there are ways that you could run the company to to maybe earn more profit. Um, but I'm wondering uh, what is what is the profitability for you? Is it a, is it a you know, are, are, are you acting more as like an environmental NGO in supporting the communities and, and their development? Or is this a sustainable business model that, um, you know, other companies could look at and, and emulate? Sure, yeah. Um, it's definitely a business. Um, it's 100% it's got to be a sustainable business for us. So with all our costs and everything, even paying fishermen higher than market wages and everything, um, we're stay that's another advantage of being here in the U.S., the higher price points, and that affords us that luxury of paying for 
better salaries and other benefits and stuff like that. But yeah, we're 100% a, a for-profit business. Um, and yeah, we donate and stuff, but it, it has to be a sustainable business so that we can continue doing what we do. Yes, as you, as you grow, will you always be a, a niche market or w would the business be able to grow into a point where you could be competing with um, other larger businesses, keeping that business model um, the same? Like, is that, is sustainable, but is it sustainable long term? Would you get bought out or, or outcompeted so that that model would have to change? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, we always say that we don't sell fish, we sell a story. Um, with helping mitigate the damage of this fish, with helping the fishermen and everything. And so, yeah, we'd like to believe that we can continue to grow as a company. Uh, we probably won't be, you know, the, the next Slim Jim or whatever mega billion dollar company. Um, but we're, we don't need to be. We're happy being, you know, a $10 million company. And, and um, eventually, you know, right now we're the fish jerky guys, right? But we really do want to take on beef jerky or other proteins further down the line and, and make some noise. But yeah, we understand that given our business model, given our focus on a wild caught fish protein source, we're never gonna be able to scale to making you know 10,000 pounds of jerky a day. But we're okay with that. And can you talk a little bit more, so we're talking about a product that has a price premium. And so one of the things we can appreciate is that it's supporting communities, it's getting rid of this invasive species that's ecologically damaging, but maybe to give the audience a sense of appreciation, when you're working in a rural community like that, there's that cold, cold chain. Can you explain to them what the cold chain process is and some of the hoops that you had to go through to make sure that that fish from catch to your processing facilities was handled properly? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think the first lesson was because everyone hates this fish and they look at it as garbage, um, you know, we had to go in and say, no, you have to keep this thing alive, keep it fresh before we process it. Um, so that was one. A, a big advantage for us dealing with the cold chain in Mexico, rural Mexico. So uh, I, almost everyone that we work with rows out to fish. So it's about an hour, hour and a half each way to the lagoon rowing. Um, like one in three, maybe one in four has a motor. Um, and so one option would be to ask these people to carry, you know, 50 pounds, 100 pounds of ice. Um, but we were actually really benefited by this fish itself because it doesn't die. Um, so they capture it, they keep it alive just in the bottom of their boat and they bring it back and we buy it. Um, the facility itself, uh, we got started in an unused house so there is, um, you know, just open air. It, average temperature is about 95 degrees um, in Telasco, so it's, it's pretty hot. Uh, it's really, really hot. Um, and so it makes it tough. Um, luckily, we, and this goes back to having the community buy-in. You know, people saw the value of this, and they pooled resources from government grants and stuff for housing. Um, and we built a facility out of, everyone chipping in. And there was um, you know, people, construction workers in the town that said, okay, we'll help you guys because that's my cousin, he's earning a living from this now. So we built a whole facility that is FDA registered and everything with uh, air conditioning and, and the cold storage. And uh, so we process it, we vacuum seal it, we freeze it. Um, and then getting it from Tabasco to Mexico City, which is like 12, 14 hours in a car, 
That was another hurdle. There's no, you can't just like call the refrigerated truck guy and like have him stop by your rural town. Um, so again, relying on our local network of fishermen, um, we managed to get a hold of some people that transport fish from even further south to Mexico City, um, pay them a little extra on the side to uh, take our, our product. Um, and then we've been relying on DHL actually to do a lot of overnight shipping and stuff. But uh, yeah, it, it's tough. Um, luckily, we one thing if you guys are going to start a company, especially you know you guys in, in school still, um, rely on advisors that are smarter than you and more experienced, definitely. So we really benefited from that. Um, leaning on people that had done similar stuff before and they helped us with gel packs and company contacts and all this, that made the whole difference. Okay, so um, mercury has been like found in a lot of fish and obviously like the mercury level of fish are increasing um, to a point where like sometimes fish could be a little bit alarming for some people to like consume a certain amount. Um, have you like looked into the mercury level of this fish and like could it be concerning for people to consume this fish? Yeah, definitely. Um, because of the stigma around this fish, you know, we knew we had to get out in front of it. And so we've tested the fish multiple times with different labs. Um, not just for mercury, but for all sorts of uh, heavy metals and, and bacteria and stuff like that. So it's come back clean. Don't worry, you guys have eaten it. It's come back clean. Um, because, yeah, you know, food safety, especially when you're dealing with a fish that has so much uh, stigma. Um, yeah, you know, and I think the other positive side is that it is not a predator and it doesn't live that long. So you can't really accumulate that many or that much, uh, you know, heavy metals, toxins, whatever. Other questions? Oh. Uh, you mentioned briefly that uh, one of the ways you offset the uh, problems of not being able to ship in from Mexico, that you caught um, the fish where it's found in the few states it is in America. Um, is that a um, actual feasible uh, solution? Like, is it still found in the same kinds of quantities it is here as it was in Mexico? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and that's something that we're exploring. So, for example, a problem in parts of Texas is that you're not allowed to use nets. So that's why, I don't know if you guys know this, but there's holes in these because they were spearfish, so you can only spearfish them, which that's one of the problems with the lionfish industry is it's just harder to, to, to scale and to capture a lot of them. Um, and then the other thing is the size. So the, this is like the average size they sent us from Texas. And in Mexico, like you throw a net like that and you catch 100 pounds of fish that big. Um, so that's an issue. In Florida, apparently, they are a lot larger and you're allowed to use nets. Um, and so, yeah, that's, we're, we're still looking into it. In, in San Antonio, for example, um, word on the street is you're allowed to use nets and then the fish are also bigger. But we're, we're still in a semi-exploratory phase, so we need to figure that out. I think this is a great story of uh, entrepreneurship. And uh, two questions. Where did your original round of funding come from? And secondly, you mentioned that people in the community chipped in to build the facility. So our community people, are they shareholders in the company in some way? Yeah, so the, the original funding uh, came from my student loans at Berkeley as a master's student. So that's how we originally got started. Um, and then I probably misspoke a little bit with the, the chipping in. In terms of financial support, it was um, 
there's a couple government programs that'll give you the materials to build houses. Um, so they already had the materials, they already had a house, and they said, yeah, just take this. And you know, I, so I, we paid them rent, for example. Um, and then they, people just wanted help. You know, a lot of the people that are construction workers also fish, so they saw the benefit of having a, a process facility where they can now sell this fish to. Any other questions? Come on, guys, we gave you some jerky. <laughs> All right, well, if there are no other questions, we want to thank you guys very much for coming. We want to thank Mike for coming and sharing his amazing story. Thanks to Mike's family. Um, and I don't know where my papers are, but join us. I think it's on November 6th. Uh, we have another lecture about butterflies. You can go on our website to aquariumofthepacific.org, look under lectures, um, and get more information on this lecture and more. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. Thank you, that was great.